I received a message this week from a man who was a high school student years ago when I was a youth minister during my last year of college. So I was a youth minister there at this little church for about two years, over 25 years ago. He still attends that same church, and apparently that church, like our church, needs to declutter because they, they found a box full of stuff, and in that box was a Bible of mine. So he sent me a message to say, hey, would you like to have this Bible? Now, I have no recollection of the Bible except my name is stamped on the front, and there aren't many Curtis Cooks running around, so I assume it must actually be my Bible. Now, if you were to go and visit that church where I served, you would find nowhere in the building my name. There's no plaque anywhere in the building with my name on it from my time of service. And if that man took that Bible today in the service and walked around and said, hey, do you know Curtis Cook? Most people in the church would say, no, never heard of him. No, I've never met him. Now, there's still some folks there who were there 25 years ago who would remember and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember him. You know, he was a nice kid, but we should not have hired that guy. He had no idea what he was doing. He was young and clueless. But most would say, I have no recollection of him. I have no idea who he is. Is that sad? Is that sad that the church has no recollection of me from my service there? No. In fact, it's good. And it's right. And it's beautiful. Because that church is still holding out the same gospel. Lives are still being changed. So the ministry continues, even though my name doesn't. And that's how the Church of Jesus Christ has moved forward across the centuries and around the world. There are certainly a few famous Christians in every generation, but most are ordinary, like me and like you. Most will never be famous, like most of us. But that's not sad. That is beautiful. Generations like us come and go, and one name remains, the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. That doesn't mean that our lives don't matter, for they certainly do as we get to join in glorifying God and joining in the mission of Jesus until we die and then are with Jesus. And today in our text, we'll see many names of ordinary Christians whose lives mattered as they engaged in the mission of Jesus, and they, though forgotten, they will provide a helpful example for us. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans, to Romans 16. Today will be in Romans 16, beginning in verse 1. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app, just so you can see the, the text in front of you. It'll also be projected for you as well. At the outset, I just want to apologize to many of the folks in our text who I'm going to mispronounce their name. I, I tried to practice it. I'm going to try to do my best. I thought about delegating it to somebody else in the church and having them read this, uh, but I'm going to do my best, but I certainly will get some of these names wrong. So Romans 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant at the church at Sintra, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. 
Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus and our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Trephana and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Neruus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and greet and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason. So Sipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. This morning, as we look at our passage, we see that the gospel produces a devoted and discerning church that serves together in love. A devoted and discerning church that serves together in love. And we'll look at this text under two aspects of that. First, we'll see a devoted church. And second, a discerning church. The first point will be the most of our time in point one, and then we'll look at point two. So first, we see a devoted church. If you've read through Romans before, if you're like me, if you make it to chapter 16, you would likely either just skip the chapter completely or your eyes kind of glaze over as you look at all these names. It's like a lot of us, I think, often handle a genealogy. We get there, we see the names, but we're like, I don't recognize most of the names. I'm not sure how this could be relevant to us. And so we, we just blaze right through it or jump over it. But friends, actually, there's much here for us in this collection of names. As Paul's winding down this letter to the church in Rome, we see in our passage that he commends this woman, Phoebe. We'll talk about more in a moment. And he encourages the church in Rome, the believers in Rome, to greet all of these individuals that he mentions. Now, Paul is not primarily himself saying hello to them, but he's saying to them, they are to greet one another. The Christians in Rome are to, to greet, to welcome these others. That's what we've seen earlier in this letter, this call to welcome one another, to invite into one another's lives. As we look at the passage today, we'll see several aspects of 
what it looks like to be a devoted church. And first, we notice about the church that they were diverse. The believers were a diverse group of people. We see in this list of names both women and men. Nine of the 26 are women, and some of the strongest affirmations are given here to women. Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, Rufus's mother, very explicit commendations. In a society of that day, for women to play such a significant role in a movement was truly countercultural. But this is what we see beginning in the ministry of Jesus. When we read across the Gospels, we see women playing a key role, living closely in connection to Jesus and his ministry. And that continues across the New Testament, as we see women playing significant roles in the spread of the gospel in place after place. Women have and do play a tremendously important role in the spread of the gospel in every century since then. And they play a beautiful, significant role in this church. I'm so thankful for the women of our congregation, how you serve and love and lead in such substantial and sacrificial ways. We also see in the text both single and married adults. The first woman mentioned, Phoebe, seems to be single. There's no mention of a husband. It may be that she's never been married. It could be also that she's a widow. But we also have married couples. In a moment, we'll talk about Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. And every local church, friends, is Blessed if we see the beauty of both single and married adults laboring together in the life of the local church. There's also ethnic diversity in the congregation as well. We look across these names, we have both Jewish and Gentile names. The majority of the names here are Gentile. And we know that this ethnic diversity was not without its challenges because the Apostle Paul has already addressed that earlier in the letter. To, spoken both to the Jew and the Gentile, and how they are to work together, how they are to welcome one another, how they are to bear with one another for the sake of their life together in a church. There also was significant socioeconomic diversity as well. The majority of the names here are, are names that, of people who would have been slaves or a freedman, meaning they were a slave and they had been set free. But yet also we see indications that some of them had some level of wealth. Now, what made this diversity possible? We see again and again across this list these phrases, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, in Christ. So they had all individually come to place their faith and trust, their hope in Jesus Christ. They had been adopted, therefore, into this same family. So these other differences that did not go away now were lessened in light of this greater allegiance to the family of God. That was their first and ultimate identity. And this is the foundation and fuel for true diversity today. Our shared hope in Jesus Christ. Christ has broken down these societal walls, making deep, lasting, true diversity possible. And friends, when by God's grace a church is increasingly diverse, it is unusual in any culture because we tend to be drawn to people who are like us. And so let's pray that across these areas we would, in our church, see increasing 
God-glorifying diversity. And let's pursue growth and diversity by welcoming those who are different than us, being willing at times to set aside even our own preferences for the sake of the preferences of other brothers and sisters. So we see diversity. We also see a dedication, a deep dedication among the church. We see this in the one who Paul commends to them in verse 1, the one who is coming to Rome in Phoebe. Uh, Paul is urging them to welcome Phoebe and care for her while she's there. Now we think most likely that Phoebe is the one who's the bearer of this letter. So he's the one that brings the epistle to the Romans. Now we don't know if the letter was ready to go to Rome and so they needed someone to take it and perhaps she volunteered or she was asked to go. Or, or might it have been that she needed to go to Rome for some other reason, perhaps because of commerce, and then they asked her to take the letter as she went. But Paul says to her, he describes her as a servant. It can also be translated uh, deacon of the church in century. So one might use the word servant, deacon, also deaconess. And the word that's translated both servant and deacon, deaconess, can be used in a formal way or an informal way. In an informal way, meaning anyone who's a servant. That's true of any Christian who is a servant. But the New Testament also uses it in a formal way for an office in the church. In the New Testament, we see these two offices, elder and deacon or deaconess. I think this is probably referring to her serving in an official role. This is an official office in the church. She is a deacon, a deaconess in the church in century. Now, this is one of the reasons that we here at Hope practice both men and women serving in the role of deacon, based on this text as well as what we see in 1 Timothy 3. If you're just curious more about the topic of, of the role of deacon or deaconess, there's a sermon on the church website of 1 Timothy 3, if you'd like to check that out as well. So Paul says she's a servant, a deaconess, but also that she, is, she has been a patron for many, and for Paul as well. So Phoebe may have been a merchant, but clearly she has financial means. Because to be a, a patron is to be a benefactor, to financially support. Uh, perhaps by meeting needs, perhaps by sharing her home, and then just supporting financially as people go about their role in ministry. And so Paul says she's been a substantial benefactor of his ministry. But not only Paul. He, he says many others as well. So we see in Phoebe a a deep, all-of-life dedication to the mission of Jesus. We see another example of dedication in Prisca, or we sometimes call her Priscilla and Aquila. Here we have a, a husband and wife team who were both of Jewish descent. They were, the New Testament tells us, they were tent makers by trade. So that's what they did to pay for their lives. They first met Paul in Corinth, when they and all the Jews had been expelled in Rome, so they had been living in Rome, all the Jews were expelled, and so Prisca and Aquila went to Corinth, and there they met Paul. They eventually then went with Paul on to Ephesus. Now when Paul moved on, they stayed in Ephesus for a time, and there they played a key role in the life of a believer by the name of Apollos. Apollos had come there, and Apollos had been a gifted teacher and preacher but actually was inadequate in some of his understanding. And so Prisca and Aquila spent significant time training up, preparing Apollos for the ministry that God had for him. They would eventually return to Rome. So now, at the coming of this letter, they're living in Rome. And then later, they would return to Ephesus as well. 
Look at how Paul describes it in verse 3. Look down at verse 3. He says of Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So Paul says of them, they are my fellow workers. He views them as equal co-laborers in this. So they've worked hard. They've worked faithfully. He also says of them that they risked their necks for his life. Now, now we use a figure of speech where we say, someone stuck their neck out for me. We typically mean like, let, let's say there was you know, conflict at work and your, your boss stuck her neck out for you. By that, we mean they, you know, she kind of took up for you or she spoke up for you. We don't typically mean like she literally stuck her neck out. But that's actually what this is referring to. Here, you're saying, no, that they actually risked their lives for me. We don't know the specific details. It seems perhaps likely it's during a, a, a riot in Ephesus, but they risked their lives for Paul. Now, they apparently had some means as well because they have a lot, house large enough for a church to gather in their home. So, so they're told to, to greet the church that meets in their home. And it may have been because they're tent makers for their trade, they likely needed a larger room in their house so they could make the tents. So that was where the church would gather. So here they're sacrificing in so many different ways. And notice that Paul himself, he gives thanks to them, but he also says something else. He says, all the Gentile churches give thanks to you. So because they've moved around a number of times and because of their evident influence and godliness and maturity, they are well known in numerous churches so that all the churches are thankful for the dedication of Priscilla, Prisca, and Aquila. A couple of weeks ago, I was at, at a small gathering of local pastors, and, and uh, the guy who was leading the meeting asked me to uh, just sort of share some of the story of our church over the last 17 and a half years of the church. And so as I told the story, I mean, I don't often, you know, look back and think about that as much as I probably should. But as I told the story, some of the instances across the history of the church, I, I was reminded so many people who've played a part in the history of this church. So many of you who've sacrificed and given time and energy and years of service. Some who are still here, some over the years who've moved away as well. Some, like Prisca and Aquila, who've, who've opened your very home. When we first started the church, we, we had the church facility, but to have small groups, we would try to have them in homes, and, but we didn't have many people that had a home. So, so one family, the Stumps, had a home, and so uh, we've had a, a group meeting in their home pretty much for 17 years since then. So they had a house, and they also had a basement. And so, so our plan was, you know, the adults upstairs, the kids downstairs, and our plan for child care was the oldest kid overseeing the other kids. Brilliant plan, except the oldest kid was our daughter, who was five. So probably wasn't the wisest choice we've ever made in life at church. We don't, we don't quite do that sort of design anymore. We actually have adults who care for children, but, but that's what we did. But through that, they opened their home. They have a, a yard, and so we've used their house and their yard for so many. And so, so that would be an example of somebody who sacrificed, given so freely. And so many of you have served and given, stuck your neck out for the sake of the gospel. And I am so thankful for you. We have another example of dedication in verse 6. Look at Mary in verse 6. She has worked hard for you. 
What a great name, Mary. She's the one name I got right. I think of the whole list, Mary. We don't know which this Mary is or anything more about her, but we do know this. She has worked hard for you. What a beautiful commendation. This woman worked hard for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of that local church. And then another married couple, verse 7, Andronicus and Junia. Paul says they're fellow Jews who'd been in prison with Paul. A brief note on Andronicus or Junia, or sometimes it's translated Junius. We think this likely is a husband and wife team. Now, they're mentioned, our translation says they're well-known to the apostles. could also be translated well-known among the apostles. So a question arises, were Andronicus and Junia apostles in the same way that the apostle Paul was? Actually, when we look across the New Testament, we'd say, no, they're not a capital A apostle, like the apostles that Jesus set apart, the apostle Paul then added to that, but there were numerous, we might call lowercase a apostles. The word could also be used for a messenger, for a missionary. So it's this, this role of being a missionary. So that seems to have been what Andronicus and Junior were, that they were, they were missionaries, messengers of the gospel to the extent that they ended up in prison with Paul. My friends, all across our text, we have followers of Christ who sacrifice time, energy, resources for the sake of the gospel. Some had risked their very lives. Some had gone to prison. They had endured great hardship. It had been costly and painful to follow Christ. And friends, so many of you have labored like that in this church for the spread of the gospel. Friend, your co-laboring is worthwhile. It matters. God is glorified through you as you host a community group. As you diligently lead a community group. Some of you serve in the drop-in ministry to care for those who struggle with homelessness. Some of you serve in the band and rise early on Sundays to come and serve us in that way. The welcoming team that diligently makes people feel at home and helps them to be checked in. Some of you serve in the children's ministry and invest caring for, loving the children of the church. Some of you serve as English tutors for those who are learning English. Some of you serve as elders, deacons, deaconess in the life of the church. So many of you have sacrificed financially, giving up what you could spend the money on for the sake of the advance of the gospel in our city and around the world. I'm thankful for you. And whether you know or not, other churches are thankful for you. Other churches we've been able to plant, other workers in other parts of the country are thankful for you, for your sacrifice. Friends, persevering, sacrificial service is very much like our Savior and King Jesus. He empowers us in it, and it glorifies Him. And as things hopefully resume some level of normalcy in the weeks and months to come, we'll have a fresh opportunity to rejoin some of this work of the gospel. Let's do that together. We also see that this devoted church is interconnected. We're reminded that the church of Jesus Christ is truly a global church. Notice how Paul introduces Phoebe, verse 1. He calls her our sister. So in Christ, she certainly would have been Paul's sister, but he's saying, no, she's your sister as well. Our sister. 
all who are in Christ are a part of the same family of God. So we have a chance today to, to be a part of that. So as we welcome Christians from around the world to our gathering, so it might be this summer for the 4th of July and a, and a Christian is just a tourist who stops by on one Sunday. What a great joy it is to welcome them. And then periodically or often, Christians are moving to Boston for work or for school and often from among the nations. And friends, may we as a church see them as a brother or sister walking in and we're so glad, we're joy, we're filled with joy to welcome them to be with us. Now, some have looked at this list of all these people that Paul greets in Rome, and they've wondered, Paul has said he's never been to Rome. How could he know all these people? How could someone who's never been to Rome know this whole list of people? That's a, that's a fair question to ask. Well, part of it is due to the fact that there still were not that many Christians. So we're not talking a massive group of Christians anywhere. And so because of that, and because of, this was a time when it was, it was not unusual to travel to, to different cities, and so... In a place there are fewer Christians, it's very common to know the people. So, for instance, we've been working in the nation of Nepal, where the gospel's only been there a few decades. So it's not unusual at all for a Christian in this city to know a Christian in that city. And the people in this town know there because there's just not that many Christians around. Part of it also is the fact is, as Paul gets older, he just knows more people. And that's the nature of getting older. As I get older, I know lots of people. I've joked with our kids who are now young adults that wherever you go, I know someone, is what I've told them. Wherever you go, I've got people watching you. It's kind of a joke, also kind of a threat. And when we met our now son-in-law, I told him the same thing. Really great to have you. Just know, wherever you go, I've got people watching you. And so, so he's kind of put up with me as a part of that. Well, it's part of just being older. Also, as people have been at Hope and they've moved elsewhere, Christians in different parts of the world. If you think about it, you likely know Christians in other places as well. That's the beauty of this global church that we're a part of. We also see in this devoted church, there was also love. Paul uses the term multiple times, my beloved. There's great warmth and affection from Paul to this church. As he commends them, as he encourages them, he seeks to communicate his love for them. And what fueled his love for them, their love for one another, it is that they share this same gospel because they're a part of this same family and also because they've joined in shared labor. A great way to develop affection is to work together in the same mission. If you've ever been on a, perhaps even just a short-term mission trip for a week or two, and you spend a long time side-by-side side laboring, it's a great way to deepen relationships. So that's what's happened. This church is, they're sacrificing together. They're, they're serving together. They're suffering together. And from that grows this deep affection. So Paul tells them in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, on one level, this was simply the cultural greeting of the, that day. So this was common. If you went to Rome, you would greet one another with a holy kiss. So that, that doesn't mean that all Christians everywhere have to greet each other with a holy kiss. Although some parts of the world today, that's how people normally do greet one another. But it's also noteworthy that because that was the normal greeting, it would have been unnecessary for Paul to add that because they're already doing that. So in some way, Paul is encouraging them. 
that the church should be at least as affectionate as the culture we're a part of. And I would say, to some degree, more so. If we love each other, different cultures are different in their sort of outward physical warmth, but we should be at least as affectionate, and I would say more so than the culture that we live in. So in our culture today, that, that might be through the shaking of hands, that that might be through an embrace, but, but I would say in America, it, it can't simply be a cool nod of the head. There's a deeper affection in the family of God. Now this holy kiss is also wholesome in its nature. It's, there's nothing inappropriate about that. So, so God's people are called to affection, but wholesome affection. My dad is a is a super affectionate person who loves to hug people. So if, if he met you today, he would probably hug you, even though he doesn't know you. So as a kid, one, that kind of embarrassed me. And two, as, kind of a, as an introvert as well, I, I sort of pulled back from that. But as I became a dad myself, I found the, the value and the joy of showing affection to my own kids. And especially when they don't want it. So, so like, you know, I want to hug them all the more, kiss them all the, as, our, as our son grew up, right? And it's uncool, I guess, in his mind for, for dad to hug and kiss. So, so it just sort of fanned the flame in my life to, to try to hug him and kiss him every time I can. But why? Because we're family. And for the same way as the church, we are family. We want to be affectionate towards those who are in the family of God. And friends, I think we probably all agree, this is one of the many things that's made this pandemic so painful. The inability for weeks and months to even be in the same physical space. Inability to shake hands, to hug, to be touched. I think the vast majority of us are, are longing for that day when we can resume some of that. So friends, until that day, as we try to walk and love one another, it certainly has been complicated by the pandemic. As a result of not being able to be together in the same physical spaces, I, I do think it's much easier to be suspicious of one another. To doubt the affection, the care of brothers and sisters when we're not able to see them face to face. It's true, we can see each other on Zoom, we can talk by phone, we can text, we can share emails, but still we are not in the same space where we can see eyes and expressions and body language to the same extent. Now certainly our life together as a church is more than this Sunday gathering, but it's not less than that. So much of our affection requires face-to-face -face in the same room. We see the Apostle Paul was glad to write letters to churches. He was glad to write this letter to the Romans. But if you remember, we saw that he was saying, I'm eager to come to you. Paul wanted to send him a letter, but he also wanted to be with him face to face. So friends, I hope you, like I, long for when we can be together. But until then, let's guard our hearts during this difficult time. Let's seek to assume the best about others. And let's look wherever we can to, for ways to increasingly be with one another physically. That might be outside for now, 
But whatever it takes, because we need this interpersonal connection, we need affection shared with those we love. And as soon as it's okay, post-pandemic, I may be like my dad for a while, just running up and down the aisles hugging people because it's been so long. Let's be a church that shows our affection in appropriate and in wholesome ways. And as we seek to love others, it's also worth considering, are there ways that you can make it easier for others to love you? It is true, we are called to love one another. But if we admit it, sometimes we can individually be difficult to love. So it might be worth considering in your own life, are there ways that you keep people at arm's length? That you make it hard for them to love you? And so what would it look like in this new season to make it easier for people to love you, make it easier for people to show affection to you? Because we have been loved so extravagantly by God. We can, we must love one another. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we would love for you to know this love. This unique love. That's what this whole week is about. God demonstrating his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. Because of his great love, we're brought into this love. And so if you're new, we'd love for you to know about this God who loves at the greatest of costs and brings us into the life in that love and into a family of love. And friends, I hope you're seeing that the helpful example of the church in Rome, there is nothing unique about them. There's nothing they had that we don't have. We have the same Savior. We're empowered by the same Holy Spirit. The same grace is at work in us. What they did mattered. Their love, their sacrifice, and their labor, and what you do, what we do, matters as well. So we see a devoted church. And then second, much more briefly, we see a discerning church. We see a discerning church in verses 17 through the end of the text. Paul gives them a warning in verse 17. Look down at verse 17. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So he says, watch out. Be on guard against those who would teach doctrines that would lead to divisiveness in the life of the church. He's warning them of some who would come and try to influence here from within. These are not dangers from without, but dangers within the church and the result of their teaching is division in the church. And notice that Paul says, watch out for them, and in fact, avoid them. Now, across this entire letter, Paul has been saying, welcome one another. Come towards one another. Don't let anything divide you. But here, he says, there are some things where we have to divide. In fact, you must avoid, and that is when their teaching is contrary to true doctrine. How did this come about? What does this look like? Look at verse 18. He says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So this dangerous teaching comes through smooth talk. This talk will typically seek to present itself as being very much within the faith. 
the dangerous teachings are, are typically not those who just are outright contrary to Christianity. If someone walks up to you and they say, no, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, you're probably not immediately compelled or curious about that. But it is teachings that sound a lot like Christianity. But it's often presented as a new teaching. Or maybe a more full teaching. Or a more advanced teaching. Or a, a more modern view for today. And it will almost always sound very pleasant and plausible. Most false teachers attract by being initially so very gentle and nice. I mean, an angry, screaming heretic usually doesn't just draw a bunch of followers. But as someone who sounds very gentle, sounds very much like you, sounds pleasant and plausible. And they flatter. They might say something like, you know, if you really want to be spiritual, this is the way. They might say, this is true Christianity. Not that, not that. This is true Christianity. Or this is the path to, to true and deep spirituality. It flatters you and says, you've, you've now find the route, the right path. So Paul wants the church, every church, to watch out. Verse 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. So watch out. Be wise to what is good. Unfortunately, Paul has given us some ways to do that, and one of those ways is through elders that he gives to a church. In the book of Acts, in Acts 20, we see the Apostle Paul saying farewell to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And here's what he tells them in chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul says there's an important role for these elders. Slightly different danger in Ephesus as Rome, but there's why God has given to his church elders to watch out for the flock. To watch the doctrine, the teaching of the church so a church, our church, should pray for and appoint elders who will help guard the doctrine of the church. That's essential. But there's also a very important role for the entire congregation. We don't just call elders and say, you watch the doctrine. No, we must watch it together. And how do we watch our doctrine, watch our lives? Each and every member watches together, and the best way to watch is with an open Bible. That you listen as the word is preached and as we study with the Bible open. There's something, if, you, if you're a part of a church and trust has grown, it's, it's right and appropriate to, to enter into, for instance, a service like this, assuming a certain level of trust. But friend, there should never be blind trust. You should open up the Bible and you should follow along and say, I'm not sure that that's correct. That, that seems contrary to what the Bible's saying, what he's saying up there. So all of us, every member plays a role in this. So friends, this discerning is done together. Now, it's certainly possible for an entire church to be led astray, but typically that's not how it happens. More often it happens one person at a time. 
And often we're more prone to be led astray when some distance has grown from the church. When we're not with God's people. We're not engaging in the relationships to the same extent. We're trying to go it alone. Friends, then we are putting ourselves in great danger. I can't urge you enough as a Christian, don't try to go it alone. Find a local church who, who you together can help watch out for one another. Now, how do we know what sound doctrine is? What is the sound teaching? We devote ourselves to all the scriptures, to old and the new. And as Paul's concluding his letter here, verses 21 to 23, he mentions those who were with him. We won't go into that, and even how this very letter was written down by an assistant of Paul. And this letter, the letter to the Romans, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is a part of our scriptures that guide us in right doctrine. Friends, that's why as a church we've spent months going through the book of Romans. To be able to guide us, to help us, that we can watch out, be careful, not be led astray. So we want to be wise to what is good. Growing in wisdom by taking the scriptures, studying with others, and we also ask God for wisdom. God's told us to do that. He says, if you need wisdom, ask of God who gives it freely to all who ask. Wise to what is good, but also, he says, innocent to what is evil. So we want to keep ourselves from what is evil. Now, on a certain level, every culture is evil because every culture, every society is made up of sinners like us. So it's not surprising that sin abounds and that there is evil out there. The challenge is that's the world we live in. And so we can breathe in, be so familiar with evil that it no longer seems so evil to us. It seems acceptable. Sometimes even we begin to call evil good. So as long as we live, we'll have to continue the pattern of watching out, seeking to grow in wisdom and alert that evil so easily becomes normalized in our hearts and minds. But friends, the good news is the day is coming when that will come to an end. Look at verse 20. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So Paul gives them and us this assuring promise that the church of Jesus Christ will triumph over Satan. Satan will not ultimately win out. And all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God promised Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This was pointing ahead to Christ. And Jesus Christ came to do just that. And through his death and resurrection, Satan has been decisively defeated. Friends, that's what we have the joy of celebrating this week. I hope you'll plan to, to set aside time to dwell upon and think about what it means that Christ has come, that he has defeated Satan, that he has provided this glorious gift of grace. He's provided transformation and power for life today through his death and resurrection. I, I hope you'll join us this week as we celebrate that. So Satan has been defeated but the defeat is not yet complete. So Satan is still at work in the world. He still has significant power and influence. So he hangs on and works against God's plan and works against God's people. And he seeks to destroy every Christian and every church. But the promise here is there's a future day coming when Satan will finally fully be defeated. He will never again be able to deceive harm 
God's people. And that will happen when Christ returns, that, that future day that we await. Then the God of peace will crush Satan. So then there will be perfect peace because the one who's been undermining, destroying peace has finally been destroyed. But until then, until that day, we must continue to be alert, on guard, seeking to use the tools that God has given to us, walking together in the family of the church. And God will give us what we need for daily living. Verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Friends, God gives grace to us every day. He's given grace to you today. He will give you grace tomorrow. And his grace is powerful. Powerful for all that you need this week. You know, just a few years or decades, few will know our names. And we pray that by God's grace, until Christ returns, it is our prayer that the gospel will be preached in this church building. That 50 years from now, 100 years from now, the gospel might still be preached. But our names will be forgotten. Now, if they are like us, there may be an old box in the attic. And in that box, there might be an old church directory. And maybe your picture will be there in ours. Maybe our names, and someone will flip through it one day and say, huh, I wonder who those people were. Is that sad that we'll be forgotten? No. It's beautiful. It's good. And right. For we have hope far beyond this life, and this is God's way of working faithfully through ordinary people like us and then ordinary people like them doing beautiful kingdom work in one generation after another. So friends, may that be true in us for as many years as we have life. Let's embrace like life together, a, a devoted church and a discerning church for the glory of God. This morning as a means of response, there are several ways to respond. If you're watching online, there's the connection form. If there's some ways that we could pray for you, maybe you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christian. Or if you're here in person, I hope you'll take the connection card and you can tear it off and you can fill it out. Following the service, you can drop it in the boxes on the way out or you just leave it on your seat. We're also going to bow our heads in a time of silent praying. But right where you are, maybe pray that God would grow you in your love for his people or enable you to watch out for false teaching or, or stir you to serve. Or maybe to consider Christ for the first time. We'll have time of silent praying, then I'll lead us in praying, and then we're going to sing together, lift our voices together in praise to our great God. Let's bow our heads for a time of silent praying. Father, we're thankful for your grace that is abundant and free. I pray for those of us who are in Christ that you would sustain us as you promised by your grace today. Would you grow us in our devotion to one another, 
sustain us through this difficult time of distance. Help us to know how to express our affection for one another. Lord, I'm thankful for this church, so many who sacrifice so much, who serve so faithfully. Lord, we're thankful that through that, your good news advances. Your church is able to minister on this corner of this street. Lord, we're thankful you're doing that in church after church all over the globe. Lord, would you enable us to be a people who watch out, who are alert to dangerous, divisive teaching. And Father, this week, as we celebrate this holy week, help us in the midst of the busyness of life to slow our hearts and minds, to think upon what a great God who would send forth Christ the Son to rescue sinners like us, to make us sons and daughters, to bring us into your family, to crush Satan. Help us now as we sing. Refresh our weary hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.